Hello and welcome to the Doxology Podcast. My name is Jens Nelson and with me as always is my co-host Lucas Stock. This is a podcast dedicated to journeying together on the road that is the Christian faith. Join us as we explore, discuss, and grow together as followers of Christ. So, Lucas, uh, today is April 12th, otherwise known as Resurrection Sunday or Easter Sunday. Um, it is sort of the uh, the culmination of, of Holy Week, you know, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So, uh, it's a, a special time of the year for us, and it's, it's one that's a little different. Um, I was yeah. trying to remember, I mean, I know never in my lifetime... But I was trying to sort of recall church history, like how many times throughout our history have we been providentially hindered from gathering on a day like today? I don't know. Like, what are your thoughts on that? Like, how I mean, are you doing during all this stuff? I would, you know, definitely far from the first. I mean, we think just of 100 years ago, there was Spanish flu. Before that, we had all sorts of plagues and pestilence in the past, you know, obviously like Black Death. Um Recently, and, and you know, I, I can't remember the article I saw, but it was in light of all this COVID stuff. Um, I learned about a plague that happened um, while St. Cyprian was alive, which was in like the two or three hundreds, I think. He was Bishop of Carthage, I believe. Um, and I think, it, I think it was like actually came to be known as Cyprian's plague or like the plague of Cyprian because he documented a lot about it that I guess was, is, you know, one of the main sources we have about it or something where, um, he thought it was like the end of the world cause people were just dying <laughs> so much. So I, you know, and then I think of, I think of other things, um, tragedies like war or natural disasters. I, I mean, I, it would probably be safe to say that somebody or some group, um, whether it's something natural or sickness or persecution it is providentially hindered every Easter. Um, but That's certainly fair. on on this scale, on this universal level, I don't think that um, that's probably happened to very many people who are still alive. Um, yeah. You know, today, I, it's been a very difficult, you know, I mean, I don't want to make it sound like I've been, you know, falling apart or anything, but it's been really difficult <laughs> to sit through my church's live streams uh, yeah, just because same. of how sad it makes me feel to sort of be just reminded that i'm not able to go worship together um with them and um especially on a day like today i mean there's lots of joy today um and that certainly helps i think <laughs> um to be uh celebrating and and focusing on and, re and remembering the resurrection um had a really really good sermon this morning from our pastor on the resurrection and it was just a a great service even though we couldn't physically actually have a service um right but it's definitely been a tough time and i know you know if, if you're listening to this later i'm not sure exactly when this will come out but it'll be after easter but um it is such a big day we couldn't just not mention easter right, and exactly. <laughs> i see you're wearing a superfly uh Oh, yeah. Easter shirt that I am also wearing. Not the same shirt, but the same design. <laughs> yeah. One that my wife my wife had made for this time of year. It's something that she's done the last two years. She made one last year, mm -hmm. but like actually made them um, mm. like herself. I mean, she didn't make the shirts themselves, but she bought plain shirts and made the, the graphic on it. And then that's this year really I thought cool. it'd be a lot easier to, to do it this way. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. I mean, they're awesome. Shout out to yeah. Hannah's shop. Maybe we'll put in the... 
description. in the description. <laughs> yeah. That'd be cool. Yeah, it's not. It's one thing she said too. It's not just for Easter, obviously. It's uh. Yeah. I mean, yeah. this is the reality. The sh- the cross doesn't just shape one day every year. Right. But it literally shapes our entire lives. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, definitely. You know, continuing on, plugging along in our unique time. Um, we're going to continue as, as normal as we can. So uh, like we've already sort of mentioned, welcome to another episode of our uh, humble little doxology podcast. And um, are you ready for a new topic today, Jens? You better I believe I am. I'm ready. Um, so today we're going to be talking uh, about creeds and confessions. What are they? Why do we have them? Should we have them? What do they do? Um, what purpose do they have and and you know all of these questions sort of coming together to answer um what what we want to do is sort of provide a practical uh encouragement and reason that creeds and confessions should be used and could be used uh to help uh i guess prevent or uh readjust uh certain errors that we see in um the church in our own time um especially American evangelicalism, you know, what we come out of, what we are more or less uh, a part of these days, um, and the ways that we can use the historic creeds and confessions of the church at large, and um, more specifically, a denomination or a tradition that that, that we're a part of, um, to um, help us to teach and preach and reflect on scripture in a way that is uh orthodox that is faithful um and that stays true to what scripture teaches um so i think a good place to start would be like what is this you know the problem or the problems that we see in the church that would need to be addressed by these confessions in the first place yeah um well I sort of collected a number of thoughts here um, as I was sort of dwelling on this topic throughout the week. These are just some of the things that that came to mind. And I I think it's it's safe to say that modern evangelicalism often has a problem with tradition. Um, And when I say modern evangelicalism, I guess that probably even needs um, a greater definition, a longer definition, more of a a topic Mm -hmm. of its own. Um, but basically, I mean, you know, like Bible-believing, um, gospel-preaching churches in America, especially. Um, I don't, I don't know. There's probably better ways to to define that. But when I'm thinking about like modern evangelicalism, I'm thinking of just the 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 church in America as a whole. Often views tradition as archaic, um, as dry, as hollow, as unnecessary for the church today. They might see it as like, yeah, that was really beneficial for the church at one point in its history, but today we have, uh, a, you know, a certain set of problems, a certain set of solutions to those problems, and so we're going to do what we do to to kind of move forward into the future, I guess. And like, what, what I, I guess what I mean by that sort of going to be become more apparent as we go. Um, but one illustration that I remember from our time at Moody, and I'm, it, I was racking my brain all week as to who said it. I want to say it was either um, Litfin or McDuffie. Um, so one of our church and Western culture professors, he used to always say that as Christians, we're standing on the shoulders of those who came before us. So we don't we don't stand on our own as like as though you know in the year 2020 we're 
suddenly the church and it have suddenly appeared with no history to it right. and we need to like find a path forward um though it sometimes seems like that's how churches function when in reality we are standing on the shoulders of those who came before us so your modern mega church down the road even though it might look different from you know that more traditional baptist church on the other side of the road um both are sort of standing on the shoulders of you know of those that came before and i guess you know when we're having this conversation we're speaking as people who live in the united states we don't necessarily have um you know much experience outside of that other than what we can read and um perceive but you know speaking of the united states many seem to sort of be attempting to reinvent the wheel when it comes to uh, liturgy, when it comes to preaching, when it comes to, you know, the way that we lay out our building and how it's constructed, when it comes to the types of songs that we sing, um, our, our ecclesiology, so sort of like a theology of the church, like what the church is, um, what constitutes a church, how is it governed, how does it operate. So our ecclesiology and our soteriology, which soteriology is sort of a theology of salvation, so those two things have become so like watered down. They've become almost in some cases non-existent. It's almost as though, you know, sort of like I said, we're trying to reinvent the wheel. And so instead of standing on the shoulders of those who have come before us, instead of, um, you know, looking back, we're almost ignoring what has come before and sort of making up our own rules as we go. Um, and so I, I sort of came up with, a, I think, a helpful illustration that, shows the point that I'm trying to make. And so um, instead of flowing downstream, so picture a stream somewhere with a, a pretty steady flow. Instead of flowing downstream in the waters of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church for which Christ gave his life to redeem, many churches stand still or more likely trudge upstream seeking to manufacture a quote unquote better way forward. And so mm. some of the irony of this is like if you picture a, a pretty heavy flowing stream or if you want to picture even roaring rapids, you know, right. going down a mountain or whatever, um, you know, there, there's a, there's a, a way that th those waters are moving and let's just call that the history of, of the church. Um, but today in modern evangelicalism in the 21st century church, especially in America, it seems like a lot of churches are like, you know what? I don't like the way that this stream is flowing, so I'm going to find my own way. And so they either will stand still because there are some churches that will sort of stand still, but there are others that like sort of try to go against the stream. They try to go against mm -hmm. the grain and seek to create a better way forward when it's like there's already a way forward that's been working for 2000 years. Why are we trying to reinvent the wheel? Um, and so again, that was sort of like my imagery for all of this. Um, could you, you know, speaking um, could, of, if I could just butt in, yeah, please. Um, I, I wonder like, do, do you have, maybe, maybe you'll get to in a little bit, but do you have like an example of like you, you noted ecclesiology, our understanding of the church and soteriology, our understanding of salvation as being, you know, like you said, watered down or, or not really well formulated. Um, but whether it's those or, or some other area of of theology or church life or worship like can you give an example of what it might look like for um, an individual or a church to be trudging upstream as opposed to flowing with the stream yeah definitely um so one example that comes to mind right away for me anyway is often like stephen furtick 
um, mm. from Elevation Church. And I know that there are a lot of people that really like him. He, for you know, to his credit, he is a very at least good speaker. Like if he was like a motivational speaker at, you know, your school assembly, he'd probably do a really good job of like motivating you to not do drugs. Um, (laughs) But um, he has said on a number of occasions in interviews, in sermons, um, I've, I've seen him say it, uh, that his church elevation church uh, is not a place for mature believers. Um, He says that everything that they do at elevation is done with the aim of reaching the lost, which, sounds like a really good thing right it sounds like a very noble endeavor um but there's something wrong with that theology um and so i guess we sort of had to ask ourselves what is our authority on matters of of faith and practice um so when we think about what it means to be a church what it means to um gather together what it means to worship together um historically speaking is the church a place where the where we sort of sort of seek to attract the lost or is it a place where believers gather for fellowship for growth for maturity like that's sort of like a question about ecclesiology what is the church for what is the church's function and stephen furtick sees his church functioning as a i don't want to say machine and make it sound really bad but essentially it's trying to produce believers and then he has said like if you're much new believers right and he says if you're if even if you've been here you know, if you've been a believer for a month, like seek a different church. We are not a church that is here to help you grow. Um, and he, he, that's, could, he could probably stop with, we are not a church. <laughs> well, I know. Right. And, and so that's again, an, an example. Um, there are many like that. Um, you know, I think of, you know, if we're talking about, um, I guess that, that even that example of Stephen Furtick touches on both ecclesiology. So, theology of the church and soteriology the theology of salvation uh, because i'd have to imagine that his theology of salvation is pretty watered down and base as well very bare bones it's just probably like pray this prayer type and then you'll get to go to heaven um and so that's again it's one of the biggest churches in america even if he's not the biggest as far as like congregational attendance on a Sunday, he has a really wide reach on social media. Um, I mean, constantly I see people retweeting his, his sermons um, and his, you know, his messages. And more often than not, he's just like yelling a bunch of nonsense, like Mm. an example of a sermon that he gave. He, he, so he was using the resurrection of Christ, which we are celebrating today on Easter. He was using the resurrection of Christ to say that there is not a single area in your life that is dead that cannot be resurrected. So he was basically saying like, like the gospel gives like the resurrection of Christ allows dead quote unquote dead areas in your life to be resurrected as well. So if your marriage is dead, if your finances are dead, if your, um, if your career advancement is dead, uh, the resurrection gives you power to sort of like overcome those things and come to life and flourish in those things, which interesting, (laughs) man, it it was, again, I I usually only watch those things because they appear and I want to see like, what is he saying? I'm not always trying to seek out to bash him. Like, you know, if he was to, become a very good and faithful expositor of scripture, I'd be all for it. Um, but I guess like to answer yeah. your question, um, as we've said before, we've said this a number of times on the podcast, everyone is a theologian. Um, we're not just talking about the academic who is in the university or maybe your church has a theologian in residence or something. Um, but 
we are all theologians. We all have ideas about who God is, how the church should function, how um, salvation works. And that doesn't mean we're all right all the time. Um, But we need to come to the reality that the theology that we do is a Christian theology. And it is a historic Christian theology that is founded on a historic event and historic people uh, who... Right made that path they laid that path for us again we are standing on their shoulders we are in that stream um, of of christian orthodoxy one holy catholic uh, apostolic church and so Mm -hmm. this sort of like naturally brings up the conversation i think of like the relationship between scripture and tradition so this is sort of where creeds and confessions are going to really start coming into the conversation um, because tradition viewed as the past teaching of the church in its confessions, creeds, and representative theologians, effectively represents the sum total of the accumulated biblical exegesis, the biblical teaching of the Christian church. Um, And so, like, that was, like, a a very technical definition, sort of, of, like, what tradition might be. Um, It's not just, like, thinking about a traditional liturgy. Like I think when a lot of people think about like traditional versus contemporary, they think of, um, you know, the, the old style Baptist church down the road that has pews and still has, um, you know, red carpet on the ground or, um, you know, they sort of more or less think about the way that it's arranged, the the mm-hmm. order of the liturgy, as opposed to like the modern, like, it's almost like we're in a movie theater, we have like reclining chairs, and it's really dark in the sanctuary, um, or should I say the auditorium. Um, and, you know, they think of that as tradition, when really tradition is the past teaching of the church, the, the past... Um, again confessions creeds um theologians and it's basically like a representation of the accumulated biblical teaching of the church historically so when we think about the church when we think about um the path that they have laid for us um you know we're specifically thinking of of creeds and confessions and how they were used how they came to be created what their purpose was then versus what what it is now um and so I, I don't know if you have any any questions before I continue to proceed here. No, um, I mean I, th- I think that that makes a lot of sense, and um, you know what what we're talking about, you know, specifically is is the the, the creeds and confessions, um, such as the Nicene Creed or you know the Apostles' Creed, like we we had a whole episode about um, con- different kinds of you know confessions that might be a little more unique to certain denominations or, or traditions, but um, but broadly speaking, there is there is tradition, you know, in a bigger sense than just those things. Um, right. Like you're saying that that is is like the sum total. I, I like that 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 phrase. You know, it's the sum total of of the church's um, teachings, interpretations, theology. Um, those you know form forms of worship like liturgies and what color vestments you wear on what day or if you use right. vestments like that kind of stuff is is definitely included but but like you're saying it's so much more than that um right and the and the creeds and confessions what we're focusing in on are sort of like um when it, it, in a way i think and we'll get into this a little more like it's sort of crystallizing that sum total or, or summarizing that sum total in a in a very succinct way um right. that that helps us to to you know 
have like a go-to almost like a like a table of contents of right. of what it means to be a christian and maybe to sort of like help with what i've already said you know so in thinking about stephen furtick and his church of elevation church you know when he set out to think about what what kind of church are we going to be what type of body are we going to be what is our purpose what is our goal um he probably wasn't looking all that closely at christian tradition because the right. way that he runs his church um looks very different from the historic church from yeah. uh, its tradition from its practice from its purpose even um and so that's why when we're talking about tradition we're not it's not we're not talking about something that's rote we're not talking about like something that's boring and archaic and old and useless but we're talking about like again that sum total of what the church has believed what the church has affirmed what it has done in its faith and practice and so uh, I think it's helpful to say that on one hand, tradition is not on the same level as scripture. So creeds and confessions are not held at the same level as scripture. However, when we neglect tradition, it is to our demise. We are in peril when we when we reject tradition. And I think that this is sort of where uh, sola scriptura is often misunderstood. If you've never heard that phrase, um, it's a Reformation slogan. It essentially means like scripture alone. Um, it was never intended to exclude the tradition of the church. A lot of people think that it does. Like a lot of people think that like sola scripture, sola scriptura only means like me and my Bible. Um, but instead, it essentially asserted that the Bible is the supreme authority. Like the Bible stands alone. Like it's not the Bible and tradition and the Pope and this and that. Um, because many other sects and uh, heretics have claimed such a thing. Like they've, they've claimed that, you know, tradition is, is vastly important. Tradition, um, you know, helps in, in, you know, even salvation. Um, and so they, this, it's sort of like this difference between sola scriptura and solo scriptura. Um, and solo scriptura would say that the Bible is my only authority. So if I'm going to talk about any sort of way that I go forward, however I want to structure my church, however I want to think about my theology, the Bible is the only authority that is going to inform how I do things, um, which is effectively to say that my understanding of the Bible is superior. So how I read the Bible in 21st century English is superior to the accumulated wisdom of every generation of Christians that has ever lived. So it's like, I don't care what the heck Augustine had to say. I don't care what Martin Luther and John Calvin had to say. I'm going to read my 1611 New King James, or I guess King James authorized Bible, and I'm going to come to conclusions about how I should live my Christian faith, how Christian faith and practice should be done here in 2020. Um but that's just not how we live as Christians. We do not live in a world of it's only Jesus, my Bible, and me, as though and, that was the sum you know, total of... Exactly. And, and when we do <laughs> act that way, we get into some really, really big trouble. Um, bigger trouble than, you know, I would say, I want to be really careful with my words, but I, I think de-emphasizing tradition or misunderstanding what it means to have scripture as my supreme authority um, and, and sort of twisting that into this is my only authority. I don't need a church. I don't need any other outside voices because I have my Bible and I have my brain and that's all me and Jesus need. Doing that is, is at the very least, it's as dangerous 
as saying, I don't need to read the Bible. I don't need to read um, theologians or, or to do, you know, any sort of uh, rational thought about theology and interpret scripture because I can just listen to whatever my pastor has to say. It doesn't matter. Right. It doesn't matter what he says because he's, you know, uh, in a position of, of, you know, church leadership. That means he's right. Um, and that would sort of be the, you know, the two extremes would be, I'm not thinking, I don't need to think or discern or be involved in my faith because I can just take at face value whatever my assigned traditional authority is. And the other extreme being, I don't need to interact with anybody else because my only authority is the Bible and I can perfectly interpret the Bible on my own in a perfectly legitimate way because it's just me and Jesus and, and he speaks to me through the Bible and I pray to him and then that's all I need. And both of those things are, are very, very extreme positions that very few people, no matter what church tradition you come from, <laughs> have ever actually like held or done or taught. Um, right. But you, you, you know, if we, if we talk about them in these extreme ways, we can, we can see the dangers um, of both positions of of overemphasizing tradition and overemphasizing um, what it means to to uh, have a personal access to scripture. You know, like it where we're overemphasizing something on both ends, and that's bad. When we when we spend right. too much time on one end of the spectrum, um, if you can think in that way, we we run into. Um, different problems or at least problems that look different but at the end of the day we run into the same problem of we've completely imbalanced the way we're doing theology um, and that's going to completely wreck the way we do worship the way we do church um, and the way we live out that faith and that theology right and i think i'll give you just like two really helpful examples that came to mind here of this like in a a very practical um in a very practical way so I, to, for the life of me, I cannot remember the name of this person, and it's probably better that I don't. But there was a YouTube video um, a little over a year ago that came out. And I remember when I watched it, I was just dumbfounded. I was like, <laughs> I could not believe it, what, what he was saying. And so there was this guy who um, has a YouTube channel, and he, he was talking about um, Christianity and LGBTQ um theology as well in a in a way but the point of this video was he his conclusions were that jesus is polyamorous so he this is somebody who himself was a polyamorous person which is basically it means many loves they don't you know they're not necessarily um gay or straight they love everybody they love everything they can be in relationships with with all sorts of things um, and so this person came to the conclusion that jesus too is polyamorous and his conclusion was drawn from the reality in his mind that Jesus is in a personal relationship with every person on the planet that believes in him. And so Jesus is polyamorous. He has many loves, many people that he is in a relationship with. Um, and right. so, and specifically that, that, polyamory refers to multiple partners at the same time. N right. Not so right. much a orientation, but right. You know. Exactly. That's yeah. That's a yeah. helpful clarification. Um, and so that's again, an example of like nowhere in, uh, traditional christianity would that have been a confession like that we don't right. see that in the nicene creed we don't see that in 
the London Baptist Confession of 1689 or whatever. Um, and so that the way that those things happen is a very it's on that dangerous end of the spectrum where we see tradition as unimportant like those people they were living in a different time they didn't understand what's happening in the 21st century in 2019 2020 um and so like we need to come up with a a new way forward for our theology a new Mm. way to relate to the world to relate to the lost and so like that's a that's an example um again an extreme example of what can happen when we forsake tradition and another another example is somebody that i actually interacted with in person once so when, when we were at moody when we were at moody um, you know, we had these things called practical Christian ministries and, and one of mine for a while was called, um, student outreach or gospel outreach. And essentially like, uh, a group of us, like 15 of us would go out into the city. So go to, you know, um, we'd go to the bean or we'd go to a subway station or we'd go to water tower place when it was winter. And we would basically like approach random people and just sort of like ask if they'd like to have a conversation with us. Um, which man, when I think about it and even when I was in it, it was always so awkward and so hard to go approach people and be like, Hey, do you want to have like a spiritual conversation? Um, often what I would do is I would try to approach people who were already trying to have conversations. So I would go to like, talk to those Jehovah's witness, Jehovah witnesses, or I'd go mm-hmm. talk to that vendor that's trying to, you know, get you to sign up for a magazine subscription on the side of the street or whatever. Um, but I distinctly remember having a conversation one time with this this random person, don't even know their name, um, and they were somebody who told me that they considered themselves to be a Christian, um, that they don't hold to the traditional, I guess, views of, of, of human sexuality as it pertains to um, what the Bible has taught, what tradition has taught throughout church history. And I remember this is, this is the part that like, that really caught me. I remember one, like we, we always went in partners. Like it wasn't just me on my own talking to these people. So I remember one of my partners that was with me this time asked like, how do you rectify what the Bible teaches with what you believe now? Cause like, if you, if you read scripture and read what it says, how do you, how have you come to the conclusions that you've come to? And this person responded by saying this basically like, I have come to the conclusions I've come to because I ignore those and I hold to only a few key doctrines that I feel that the spirit has taught me. So like to maybe Mm -hmm. to elaborate this example is they saw that I really can't rectify what the Bible teaches with the way that I'm living. So I'm going to ignore it. And then when Mm -hmm. it comes to other doctrines, whether it's the resurrection, whether it's the Trinity or whatever, I believe that the spirit has told me individually what doctrines to hold to and believe, and I'm going to live those out and forsake the others. So like, again, that's an example of like that extreme of neglecting tradition, neglecting the teaching of scripture, neglecting, um, you know, orthodoxy or whatever. And, and it's not to like make fun of these people. It's not to belittle them, but it's just an example of living in the 21st century and the sort of ideology and theology that we hold to. Um, and so I, just to sort of wrap up my section here before you go, Lucas, is that, um, the church has been around for about 2000 years. You know, when Jesus resurrected, he was on the earth for, was it like 40 days? Right. He was, he was, I think so. I don't know why I'm suddenly blanking on how long (laughs) Jesus was alive before his ascension, but before uh, Jesus ascended and established his church in the world. And ever since his ascension, uh, the church has been living, thriving, growing, maturing, learning. Um, and so it's, it's safe to say that 
in the last 2000 or so years, the church has learned a thing or two. It's not like, it's not like we haven't gathered information. It's not that we haven't, um, studied scripture exhaustively. Um, so it's not like you're going to discover some new revelation that no one has seen before. So like me, Jesus in my Bible, like you're not just going to like open up to a page in scripture and be like, whoa, I suddenly understand something that no one has ever thought before. And I'm sure like I've even felt that way. It's like, wow, no one thinks this way. No one's thought this way. And then I realized like, wow, if I read church history, if I read some of the tradition, it's like, wow, these people have been thinking this for 1500 years. (laughs) Um, And so it's, you know, I know Lucas, you and I highly value a retrieval of the historic doctrines of the church. Definitely. Um, Definitely. We're not people who are going to um, turn our, you know, turn away from them. Uh, we also understand where tradition has to be. Like we have to understand that it's below scripture. And so we, you know, I guess the last thing I'll say is that creeds and confessions are only useful to the extent that they reproduce faithfully the teaching of scripture itself. So if there is some tradition in the church that, that I feel or you feel is not a faithful representation of what te- of what scripture teaches, then we are not going to find it helpful or useful and will not continue to use it. And I know that there are certain, um, y- you know, Baptists and Anglicans, Baptists and Presbyterians, maybe they're going to differ, for example, on um, baptism. They might differ on infant baptism versus believer, b- believer's baptism. And I know that there's probably something to be said there. Um, I think both sides have arguments that can be rather persuasive. And so that's not an example of one where it's like, then we have to forsake tradition on that. Um, but there are other things that we were going to say something. No, I was just going to say like, that's like exactly right. That, um, that's an example of people who are seeking to, um, faithfully reproduce what, uh, scripture teaches and there are disagreements, Um, And we're not saying, you know, going back to what we've talked about recently with unity, we're not saying that everybody needs to believe the exact same thing or else they're a heretic or else they're not really a Christian. Um, There are, there are doctrines and, and um, teachings that are more and less important, more and less crucial. Um, And there are certain things that um, need to be agreed on and other things that there is some level of room for disagreement. Um, which as we'll get it, you know, I'm going to get into a little bit is, is kind of exactly what, um, holding to creeds and confessions and using them get, you know, allows us to do. Um, but, um, but yeah, yeah. I just, so that's maybe, really yeah, good. You, yeah. 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 And I mean, I yeah, just so want to transition into your thing. Yeah. And, and I want to start kind of just like taking that example of the stream, um, that you brought up of. Um, if, if we picture, you know, church history, picture the church um, as sort of this stream flowing down through through time, and um, we picture the, the tradition of the church as sort of being that historical flow being passed down from generation to generation, um, you know, like the, the idea of scripture being our supreme authority, um, I, I don't, I don't like the idea of saying scripture and tradition as these two different things that we have to fit together the right way. And some people fit them together this way. Some people fit them together this way. Some people say they don't go together. you know, like to me, I would want to imagine using that stream and, or that river analogy, like the, 
um, tradition is the river, or the church is the river, and the the tradition is the flow of that river, um, and the the mouth of the river, or no, the mouth is where it goes out, right? The the source of the river, <laughs> um, where the water starts flowing, is scripture. Um, there, there's a Latin phrase that I don't remember exactly what it is, so I'm not going to try and butcher a language I don't know, but um, it's like scripture, the idea of scripture being the supreme authority is that scripture is the, is the norm that norms. Scripture is the norming norm. Um, and something like a creed or a confession uh, is a norm that is normed. Do you want me to tell you what it is? I have it right here. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, so scripture is the norma normans. Right. Um, which essentially means a norming, adjusting, or measuring standard by which other measuring tools are to be measured. Right. So a norma normans, whereas um, confessions and creeds are norma normata, um, which is to say a standard or measure that itself is subjected to um, or defined by a greater standard. Right. And they, they are not something that's opposed to each other that you have to fit in a certain way. They're not some two different things there. Uh, I mean, they are different things, but like they're not um, these two separate, completely distinct, completely separated ideas that we have to wrestle with um, that, I believe that comes from a, a, a poor view of um, both scripture and tradition. Um, I think that what the church teaches us and what scripture teaches us is is um, I, I, the using the analogy of the river again. Just it it's one cohesive whole where the traditional doctrines and teachings and documents of the church are normed by the the supreme um standard which is scripture by which everything else needs to be measured once a creed so take the apostles creed once a creed has been measured against scripture that is now a standard that you can use because it's been measured so so in that sense i think that we we should say that tradition is authoritative because scripture is the final authority that gives us the ability to know what is true and what is not true. And um, other documents, other teachings, other ways of speaking can be um, authoritative as they derive their authority from scripture. Scripture derives its authority from from nothing, from no other human document or anything like that. Um, from God, though, I guess. From <laughs> direct, you know, directly from God. And that same authority is the authority that we find in the creeds in a derivative way, if that makes sense. Right. So it's God's authority, God's revelation, which, which, you know, starts in God. I guess he's the source of the river. Um, and he reveals that to us uh you know, most ultimately, most perfectly in Christ, which is recorded in, in, in written down in scripture. Um, and then that authority passes on to the church from the teaching of the apostles, which is recorded in scripture. Um, Maybe like a helpful illustration, mm-hmm. like when we're talking about like rules and standards, like think about, and I know, I know we don't think this way anymore because we don't live in this sort of society, but like back in the day, 
um, like uh, measurements, like standards for measurement, whether it's right. like, you know, measuring a distance or a weight, like how much money um, something is worth. There was a standard. There was something that determined how much this was worth or how long this was like a ruler, for example, like there is a standard ruler that is 12 inches and then anything that's reproduced past that is derivative from that original rule. The reason that a, a one kilogram weight is a kilogram is because it weighs the same as some actual physical thing that is a kilogram. (laughs) Right. Um, and I think that is a helpful that a helpful analogy, and I think that it's a helpful way to reframe our thinking a little bit, um, to where we're not trying to pit these two things against each other, but we're recognizing the way that they are meant to fit together, which is actually one part of a whole, which is the teaching of the church based on Holy Scripture, which is the revelation of God. So. Go, wrapping back a little bit into cre- like creeds and confessions spe- more specifically is how you know a question might come up of of how do we actually lay hold of this tradition? How do we actually take the um, information, the um, reflections, the teachings, um, the work that the giants that we're standing on have have done for us? How do we actually like lay hold of that? Um, how can we take that and apply it into our theology and our worship and our churches and, and actually, you know, transfer that from history to real life today? Um, that's where I want to bring up, you know, creeds and confessions as, as that's where they serve us. Um, and I guess it's a little late to do this, but just to like clarify a little bit, you know, creeds and confessions you know a creed you know we think of like the apostles creed the nicene creed um like we mentioned in that episode in in latin credo means i believe so it's it's sort of a um a a confession of what someone believes and then confessions you know documents that we refer to as confessions are, are they fulfill basically the same purpose i think typically you you'd think of a confession more as like a um a document of belief specific to a certain denomination or church body, you know, like the, the Westminster confession of faith historically is, is sort of the basic document, um, besides scripture for Presbyterians. Um, you have, um, you know, the Augsburg confession, um, as, as sort of one of the basic documents for the Lutheran tradition. Um, so, creeds and confessions they, they, they go together they're not exactly the same you know I, I think of creeds as a little more basic in general like they're more ecumenical they're, I think. you know every every tradition confesses the nicene creed um not every tradition can or would confess the confess the westminster um but but both they're doing the same thing just for different you know groups i guess you could say when i Um, I didn't mention this in my section but i think it's helpful because it helps explain what you're trying to say is that you know when when we were reading robert letham is apparently how you pronounce his last (laughs) name listen to an interview with him when we were when i was reading his systematic he he was sort of talking about um like tiers of authority so to speak Mm. so obviously scripture is that that top tier 
um, and then all other authority is derivative. And so like the next tier is creeds um, mm-hmm. because they're ecumenical, they're um, believed and affirmed throughout the ages, throughout church history. And then the next step below that is um, creedal confessions. So like these the example, um, you know, Westminster or the London Baptist Confession, um, they have a next level because they are derivative of the top two. But like you're saying, they're, right. they're more specific to a denomination or to a um, particular heritage. And then even below that is like, theological teaching and um you know exposition from Mm -hmm. pastors from theologians from other people like that and so that's a good that's a helpful way to think about the the tiers yeah i think i think it's really helpful um and you know like we've been saying there's this issue when we're when we devalue tradition or misvalue tradition um and the the problem is that like you know, no creed but the Bible, um, it it doesn't work. Um, it, it's not just sort of like different than the way things have always been done, which it is, <laughs> but it doesn't work because not every person or every group comes to the exact same conclusions about every verse in the Bible. And I'm not just talking about like obscure things like um, what does, uh, what do we mean when we read about the millennium in Revelation? Um, things that are harder to understand or maybe more symbolic or maybe less clear. I also just mean things that we would, we might think would be very, very clear. Um, not everyone comes to the same conclusions, you know, and sometimes like we talked about believers baptism or, um, infant baptism. Sometimes those are like differences that lead to like very, you know, obvious differences in what people believe in and practice. Um, but ultimately, we're not talking about something that disqualifies you from being considered a traditional classical Christian um, or certainly a Christian who is affirming, you know, seeking to live faithfully out what scripture teaches. Um, but other times the, the different conclusions that people come to are straight up heresy that destroys the very content of the gospel. Um, Arius, when he was teaching that Jesus was not divine, um, in the which triggered the Council of Nicaea, he was defending his position with Scripture. Um, he wasn't saying just stuff he thought of. He was literally using the Bible. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses, who you know, their theology is pretty much in, you know an echo of of Arianism. They in you know they look at John one one. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Um, was a god (laughs) they you know mistranslate something they misinterpret something to where they use john 1 1 which is literally a statement of jesus's divinity to defend the idea that jesus is not divine um so you can't have everybody with their bible alone because we come to different conclusions and sometimes those different conclusions are really really dangerous when the church gathered at Nicaea <laughs> to discuss Arianism, to, to, you know, push back against it, they put together what would eventually, you know, become the Nicene Creed. And what what were they doing is is they were they were outlining Orthodox belief in order to set up guardrails so that that Orthodox belief, that Orthodox um, true faithful interpretation of Scripture could be defended and protected from people who either maliciously or unintentionally um, tried to use scripture 
um, to teach heresy. Um, and the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, the Athanasian Creed, all these other, you know, um, uh, creeds and, and uh, uh, definitions and documents from councils and, and synods and meetings um, uh, have been passed down to us for centuries and centuries. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, like we just kind of talked about, the, the, the big ones like the creeds are affirmed by every branch of, of, of Christianity. Um, and then confessions, you know, it, depending on your tradition um, in the churches that you grew up in or attend, like even if you might not be super aware of it, you're probably at least indirectly an heir to some kind of confession. You know, we've mentioned the Westminster, the Second London Baptist Convention, the Augsburg Confession, um, other documents that might not technically be confessions, like the 39 Articles in Anglicanism, the Methodists, I think, chopped some off and they have like 23 articles or something um, that, you know, go into a little more detail on issues that weren't covered in the creeds or became more specific sources of disagreement later on, or, or they needed to define their group um, against, you know, others to defend themselves from persecution or just to like d- define this is who we are. Um, and guardrails is really the, the word I want to zoom in on is like, that's the value of these documents. Um, it, it's it's guardrails that that helps us and ensures that we adhere to Scripture. Um, their authority is derivative of Scripture, and they they expound the teachings of Scripture in order to protect right belief, orthodoxy. Um, clearly, you know when we're talking about like confessions, there's there's disagreements over whether you know this confession does that or this confession fails or that's not really the point here we're not we're not saying that we're not we're not trying to you know tell you what confessions to affirm (laughs) Um, but we're saying that the point of a confession the point of these historical documents is that it keeps us from veering away from what scripture teaches Um, you know each and every new generation of church leadership doesn't need to relearn all the answers to every single question of, of faith and practice that have ever been asked these questions have been answered and typically because this is what humans like to do it's been written down <laughs> and we and and we teach our children um, and we don't need to do it on our own and when we and by not doing it on our own we're protected from from uh, we, we're able to avoid mistakes that have already been made Arianism Jehovah's Witnesses Things, there's nothing new under the sun, you know? When right. we ignore those guardrails, we go back to the problems that have already come up before. Um, and that's why, tr- that's, that's why church tradition is so important. Um, so, so maybe a question for you. Yeah. Um, you know, I sort of, you know, we, we've talked about this before. So when we're talking about these creeds and these confessions, um, maybe that's new language for you or new concepts or ideas. And you might be like, well, like my church has a statement of faith. Like, you know, if you go to our church website, you can read our statement of faith, a statement of belief. Um, like how would you say that these things are different? Is there a difference? Should we, how should we think about those things? Yeah. I think that's a really good question and a really helpful question. Um, you know, growing up like, a creed or a confession isn't something I would have been familiar with, but a statement of faith, I would have known what you were talking about. <laughs> um, right. So I think it's also relevant to, to ask, you know, that just in 
the kinds of churches that we grew up in and that we're around and stuff. That's a very common practice. Um, and I would say, you know, first of all, like in general, great. Um, I, I think it's, it's helpful and it's good to have a statement of faith. It's something you can throw up on your website. So a stranger can know what they're walking into, can know if they can trust you. Um, and I would say, you know, let's assume that the statement of faith is orthodox in its teaching, it's well-written and it's clear and it faithfully presents scriptural teaching. Um, that's, I think it's a pretty big assumption, <laughs> not your church specifically, but when you start reading different statements of faith, just that you can find online, um, that, that, that's a bigger assumption than you might think, but let's assume that it's a good, solid statement of faith. Um, you know, I would say the problem is that there's no standard outside of that particular local congregation that those statements are held to. Um, that statement can pretty much be amended or changed by anybody, um, by any pastor or any, any group of elders or whatever, um, because ultimately that statement is under the authority of that single church. So the church isn't really being held to any kind of external standard of faith. Um, they're just expressing what their faith beliefs, positions on certain issues, whatever, are, which is not a bad thing at all. But it's not right. ultimately accomplishing what a, a confession or a creed, you know, subscription to a confession or a creed does. But the other thing is, even if there's this this gold standard of of statements of faith, it's written perfectly. It's it's the most faithful exposition of scripture that humankind has ever produced. The church never changes it. It sticks to it. It's set in stone. It 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 is always faithful to it. All you've done is is redone what the creeds and confessions have already right. been doing for Spent hundreds man of years. hours on being very repetitive, I guess. Yeah, and we talked about this before, reinventing the wheel. Why would you want to reinvent the wheel? Even even the the best reinvented wheel is an unnecessary redo of something that was already made. We've we've been given the faith which was once once for all handed down to the saints. That's from Jude not a faith that's being reinvented or re-given or reworded every hundred years or every day or whatever. Um, so having those guardrails, standing in that stream of the one holy Catholic apostolic church faithfully um, by using the creeds and confessions that we've been given, it links us to the saints of old that have contended for that same faith that we are now contending for because it is one faith. It's not a new faith. Um, they, they, the creeds, the confessions, they protect us. They give us the freedom to work um, within the bounds of orthodoxy in order to bring the faith once for all handed down to the saints to our specific context that we've been placed in um, faithfully um, and that we can trust is faithful to scripture because we're not going around coming up with novel ideas and innovating every time we think we know what we're doing we are able to take something that has been given to us through scripture, through the generations, and operating within that framework, which we know objectively what it is, thanks to our creeds and confessions, we can um, do the work of theology and preaching and teaching um, and, and fulfilling the Great Commission in the context that God has, has given us. Um, and I think that it's really important to recognize that 
that's that creeds and confessions are a crucial way that they're a grace that's been given by God to the church that the church has been able and is able and will be able to do that work faithfully and they can they can be sure that we're we're standing on the rock that is um, Christ as witnessed to in Scripture as confirmed through generations of faithful believers um, and really um, it's just uh, the the the, be- the best way to, f- to fill in that gap of um, protecting us from heresy and giving us the tools and the vocabulary to move forward in the faithful uh, exposition of scripture to our own culture. So, right. so anything you want to add? Maybe to like, yeah, maybe to like sort of like help sum up a lot of what we said and why this is even, again, important or relevant, if you haven't already figured that out, maybe, um, is that we obviously hold scripture very highly. Like we, we believe in the authority of scripture and the importance of scripture, um, its divine origins, its um, importance for faith and practice in a Christian's life. Um, and so we want to be people who are living our lives faithfully. We don't want to be um, deceived. We don't want to be misled. We don't want to be, you know, following heresy and, and so that's sort of like, you know, step one. And so it's like, you know, now that we're in the year 2020, you know, about 2000 years from Christ's ascension, a lot has happened over the, you know, the life of the church. And like I said, in the beginning, we are not alone. We did not suddenly just appear one day, um, left to our own devices. But like one of the things that's beautiful about, um, the world that we live in, I mean, think about it. God created a world in which people have the cognitive ability to write, to reason, to understand, to defend. Mm-hmm. And he has gifted people to do those things in such a way throughout church history that they have been preserved and handed down. I mean, that's just like a huge blessing that I think we sometimes take for granted. And it, I think there is a little bit of like rank arrogance in <laughs> the thought and idea that like my church is going to come up with a statement of faith completely independent of anything that's ever come before and we're going to, it's going to be better than anything that's ever come before. You know, there have been people yeah. who spent hours and hours and hours and weeks and days carefully, tediously crafting these things. They weren't written in an afternoon. Um, and so I think it's really important to say that. And I think maybe just as a really good example to sort of bring home that statement of faith versus confession idea, um, you know, there was a church that I had been going to for a very brief period of time when I first got to Chicago. You know, my wife and I were trying to, we weren't married at the time, but we were trying to figure out like, we're in a new city, where do we want to go to church? And I remember we just started going to one that um, some of her friends went to. And, you know, when you're there, you sort of pick up on some of the under, like the undertones yeah, of um, right. some iffy theology. And so, you know, when you go to their website, you can read their statement of faith and be like, wow, yeah, that's, you know, why didn't I read that ahead of time? And it's like, sure, you might be reading things that, wow, that that's true. I think I'd believe that. You know, I think I believe that. I think I believe that. And then you get to one that, and I'm, I pulled up the website. It literally says that we believe that God wants to heal and transform us so that we can live healthy and blessed lives. You know, that's... Mm. There's not even any like scriptural, like, you know, a lot, of, a lot of times like confessions and creeds, they'll actually give, you know, a scriptural citation to be like, this is where we're getting this from. This isn't right. just appearing out of thin air. And it's like, man, that is very prosperity gospel-y sounding and kind of dangerous if it's taken too far. And at the very um, least, so like, it's just so vague the, and undefined that it, that you don't know if it's prosperity gospel right. or just something else, you know, and, and then at that point, it's just not helpful. Right. 
And so like, I don't want you to think that we're saying that statements of faith are bad. Like if, you're, no. if your church has a statement of faith, we're not saying like, boo, <laughs> we hate you, change up what you're doing. If you have a um, bad one, that we, then yeah, boo. But <laughs> Right. If it's bad, then maybe we need to reconsider like changing it, maybe looking at creeds and confessions and, and affirming one of them. Um, you know, it's the, at the end of the day, we just, we, we care about being, um, living our lives in accordance to what scripture teaches. And we think that tradition as defined by creeds and confessions and all that flows down that stream, that that is the faithful representation of orthodoxy of the one holy Catholic apostolic church that Christ gave his life to redeem. And thankfully, you know, as, as we wrap up here, we're celebrating Easter. We're celebrating, you know, we celebrated good Friday a couple of days ago, yesterday, Holy Saturday and Christ's descent. And today he has risen He's and, risen um, he is risen indeed. And so that's, it's, those are things that have, have massive implications for the way that we live our lives today. And we want to be faithful to our risen Lord. So, Amen. um, do you have anything you want to add before we read our concluding, I guess it's not a prayer today, but no, I, I think that um, I just want to encourage everybody to 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 think on these things and um, ultimately just be be thankful for the church, you know, and and not that she's been perfect, not that there haven't been times where things have gone way off the rails, um, but to be thankful that God has um, gifted us not only with His self revelation, which is, <laughs> I mean. It's been an eternity, an eternity being thankful for that alone, but he's, right. he's given us his body as well, um, the church. And, and I think that is um, not to be neglected, um, just how grateful we ought to be for that. And this is exactly why um, it protects right. us. Um, it keeps us safe from heresy. It, it keeps us right on track to, um, to teach and to worship properly. Um, and it, it's just there's there's nothing more beautiful and i um on that note um let's uh today instead of instead of one of our concluding prayers we're going to conclude with um reading of the nicene creed oh yeah and i'll just preface by saying that this was written in the 300s a.d so we're talking like 1700 years ago so this is again an example of something that's been passed down for a long time and uh, this is what it says (laughs) right I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits on the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Amen. So thank you so much for listening um, and joining us on this episode of the Doxology Podcast. 
Um, if you'd like to connect with us, you can hit us up on Twitter or Instagram at Doxology Podcast. Um, email us at doxologypodcast at gmail.com. Um, and we'd love to hear feedback on today's episode or any other episodes, questions brought on by any of the topics we've covered or just um, questions that have come to, to your mind that you'd like us to touch on um, and, and future episode ideas. Uh, we'd, we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to connect with you. So um, please, uh, you know, hit us up with all of the uh, tweets and comments and emails that you can muster up. All right. Thanks so much, guys. Thank you.